Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A grisly secret. Buried in the ashes of a burned-out farmhouse. So all these men who came to visit her, all she really wanted was their money. The remains of a legendary creature that's said to haunt the seas. They've never seen a creature like this in their entire lives. And an underground rescue that defies belief. And they literally thought this was the end. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Beyond the gleaming monuments of Washington, D.C., lies an institution dedicated to secrets of statecraft. The International Spy Museum. The collection features stealth gadgets and methods of disguise. Amongst the ingenious tools of deception lies an object that appears decidedly ordinary. It can be found in plain sight in neighborhoods across America. This is a standard issue U.S. Postal Service mailbox. But according to museum historian and former CIA agent Mark Stout, this mailbox is anything but ordinary. This mailbox is at the heart of one of the most damaging spy cases in American history. What role did this object play in a deadly game of greed, betrayal, and treason? 1985. The Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union grinds on. With each nation striving for the upper hand, the CIA and the KGB both employ a complex web of agents and informants to keep tabs on the other side. 
They're responsible, of course, for watching uh, each other uh, for threats to national security, but they literally also spend a lot of time spying to steal each other's secrets. One secret weapon in the arsenal of American statecraft is Sergei Motorin. A young major in the KGB, Motorin passes critical Soviet intelligence to the U.S. in exchange for cash payouts. But in August 1985, Motorin is suddenly arrested in Moscow and accused of selling Soviet state secrets. He is tried and summarily executed. Motorin's unexpected death sends shockwaves through the American intelligence community. But the loss of the valuable Motorin is not an isolated incident. The CIA is one by one losing its sources inside the Soviet Union. Over the next year, the CIA's eyes and ears in the Soviet Union almost completely disappear. The agency knows something is wrong, and they begin investigating whether the Soviets are listening in on their communications. But finding nothing that can explain the loss of so many informants, they start to suspect that there is a mole in their midst. So the CIA teams up with the FBI's counterintelligence division and launches a top-secret spy hunt for a traitor within their own ranks. In the late Cold War, very few Americans spy for ideological reasons. They spy for money. The CIA starts digging into the finances of uh, CIA officers who may have unexplained affluence, and one guy, one name, keeps coming up. His name? Aldrich Ames. An American intelligence analyst who specializes in the Soviet Union Ames appears to be living well beyond his means. This man is making something on the order of $60,000 a year, but he's bought a house in Arlington, Virginia, in cash for $540,000. He's had one Jaguar and then another Jaguar and then a third Jaguar. Investigators believe that Ames is selling American secrets to the Soviet Union for cash. But to confirm their suspicions, they must catch Ames red-handed. By March 1993, a full-scale investigation focuses solely on Ames. They search his office, they put a beacon on his car, they tap his phones, uh, later they go through his trash. And soon they catch the break they've been looking for. They hear him and his wife, Rosario, discussing operational matters pertaining to espionage. When they hear Ames telling his wife about meetings with Soviet agents, investigators finally have their smoking gun. On the morning of February 21st, 1994, FBI agents arrest Ames outside his residence. He pleads guilty to all counts of treason and is sentenced to life in prison. But how did Ames manage to pull off years of high-stakes espionage completely undetected? For Ames, face-to-face -face meetings with his Soviet handlers would have been too risky. So Ames and the Soviets developed an ingenious plan, centered around an object located on the corner of 37th and R Streets in downtown Washington, D.C. A U.S. Postal Service mailbox. So on a day-to-day -day basis, this mailbox was the main means of communication between him and his Soviet case officer. 
A horizontal chalk mark above the U.S. Postal Service logo signaled to Ames's Soviet handler that new information awaited. And every day, his handler would drive by that mailbox. He'd see the mark, and he'd know there's secrets waiting. Ames would then leave the classified materials in one of several secret dead drop sites in the surrounding woods. The information Ames provided to the Soviets compromised over 100 U.S. intelligence operations and directly led to the deaths of over 10 CIA informants. And for his treachery, he was handsomely rewarded. Aldrich Ames is the American spy who received the most money for his espionage, something on the order of $2.7 million. Ames is currently serving out his sentence at Allenwood Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. And the mailbox, no longer in official use, sits on display at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., a memorial to the lives lost in one of the most damaging spy cases in American history. Six million different artifacts, including dinosaurs that are over 200 million years old. These are among the wonders on display at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History in Cleveland, Ohio. But one of the museum's most popular exhibits is actually a stuffed dog. This artifact stands about three feet tall. It does possess a tail, which might give it a little additional length. As the museum's director of wildlife resources, Harvey Webster knows this isn't some run-of-the-mill stuffed pooch. This artifact is one of the heroes of Nome, Alaska in the winter of 1925. So what did this taxidermy canine do to become an international symbol of heroism and endurance? Nome, Alaska, 1925. This remote town of 1,400 people is almost totally cut off from the outside world. The closest train station is over 600 miles away. It is icebound seven months of the year, and during much of that time, the only way to get there is by dog sled. The only connection with the outside world was through the radio telegraph. Dark, freezing, and isolated one of the worst possible environments for the outbreak of a deadly disease. But that's exactly what happens on January 20th, when the children of Nome start coming down with diphtheria, an extremely contagious and often fatal infection of the throat and lungs. There was hundreds of children that were at risk. They would die this horrible, suffocating death. But Nome has only one doctor, and he has no antidote for the disease. Without this essential medication, three children die from diphtheria in less than five days. So a plea goes up to the rest of the world. We are in desperate need of antitoxin. The response is immediate. A hospital in Seattle has the medicine. But in the 1920s, flying to Nome is out of the question. The plane's engines would stall in the sub-zero temperatures. So the medicine is sent via train to the town of Nanana, more than 600 miles away. But the question remains, how will they get the medicine from Nanana to Nome? They finally came up with the idea, well, what about the dog sled teams? 
But Dr. Welch needs the medicine immediately, and the rugged 674-mile path from Nanana to Nome takes at least a month. By one month, Dr. Welch was figuring he probably would lose most of the, the, the children in the town. So they came up with the idea of, let's do a relay. 21 teams are assembled along the route, each with about 10 dogs and one driver, or musher. Each team will race the 20-pound box of medicine for about 30 miles before handing it off to the next team. On January 27th, seven days after the outbreak is discovered, the relay begins. This is as dangerous conditions as you could possibly imagine. Wind chills could be in excess of 100 below zero. In the first five days, 19 relay teams bravely drive through 600-some miles of gale-force winds. Then the antitoxin is handed to the second-to-last team, led by Gunnar Kaysen and his inexperienced lead dog, Balto. The other mushers don't think Balto is up to the task of safely and swiftly leading his team across the treacherous terrain. But Kaysen does. After racing through whipping ice and sub-zero temperatures, they are within 40 miles of delivering the antidote to Nome. When disaster strikes, an enormous gust of wind sends the sled crashing into the freezing snow. And then when he looked in the sled, the box was gone. This is the box containing the antitoxin. With the precious antidote seemingly lost, Kaysen fumbles in the dark in 40 below zero temperatures. Will he find the antidote, or will the children of Nome be sentenced to an early grave? It's January 1925. In remote Nome, Alaska, hundreds of children have contracted a fatal illness called diphtheria. The only known antidote is more than 600 miles away. A team of dog sleds races across the frozen tundra to deliver the life-saving medication. But can they make it in time? While racing through freezing wilderness with a precious antidote, the dog sled team led by Balto is hit by a monumental gust of wind tossing the box of medicine into the frozen nighttime snow. The leader of the sled team, Gunnar Kaysen, fumbles in the dark, grasping blindly with his fingers, trying to find the box. You're within 40 miles of delivering it to the doctor, and now you've just lost it. I would imagine him just as panicked and as desperate as a man could be. Just when he thinks the entire relay has failed, Somehow, against all odds in the frozen darkness, Kaysen finds the antitoxin. Now Kaysen and his lead dog, Balto, race to their final destination, a place called Point Safety. There, the final relay team will be waiting for them. But when they arrive at 2 a.m., the last team in the relay is asleep. They hadn't expected Kaysen and Balto's team to make it through the blizzard that night. So Kaysen makes a split-second decision. He and Balto will pull a double shift. Three hours later, at 5.30 a.m. on February 2nd, Kaysen and Balto complete their 53-mile journey, arriving in Nome with the life-saving serum. 
He finds uh, the hospital and pounds on the door. He hands off the box of serum, and then he goes back to the dogs, and reputedly he said, damn fine dog, damn fine dog. Instead of one month, it has taken the relay team only five and a half days to reach Nome. Within 12 days of the initial outbreak, the arrival of the medicine stops the spread of diphtheria, and Dr. Welch declares the epidemic under control. In the weeks to come, parades in Balto's honor take place across the country. Today, an annual Iditarod trail sled dog race is held to commemorate the role that sled dogs like Balto served in the settlement of Alaska. Later in his life, the city of Cleveland opens its arms to Balto and his team, letting them live out their lives in the Cleveland Zoo. Upon his death in 1933, Balto is stuffed so that his body might remain on display at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, where children of all ages could be told the heroic tale of the sled dogs who risked their lives so that Alaskan children would not lose theirs. Laporte, Indiana offers a picturesque tableau of Middle America. Originally settled by pioneers, the town's colorful past is on display at the Laporte County Historical Society Museum. But local historian Bruce Johnson says that behind these quaint scenes lurks a dark mystery. A mystery tied to this simple wheelbarrow. This particular wheelbarrow is used in a very grim, gruesome way. Rusted through with age, well-worn from years of use, this is no ordinary piece of farm equipment. It's part of one of the most infamous crime sprees in Indiana history. What horrible secrets does this wheelbarrow carry? 1908. A South Dakota man named Astley Helgeline arrives in Laporte, Indiana. Astley Helgeline had been looking for his brother who had come to Laporte, had been missing for several months. Astley goes to the last known address for his brother Andrew, a farmhouse on the outskirts of town. But instead of a reunion, Astley faces a chilling sight. The entire farmhouse has burned to the ground. They found the bodies of three children laying side by side, and then they found the body of a woman. But it was very unusual because there was no head with this particular body. Investigators conclude that they have found the farm's owner, 48-year-old Belle Gunness, and her three children. But Astley finds no signs of his brother and keeps digging for answers. He talked to the hired man at the farm and started digging. And he went down about three feet and found a body and Astley recognized his brother Andrew right away. But that's not all they unearth. Eventually found altogether 13 bodies. Who were these people? And how did they end up buried on this farm? The story begins in 1881. Brynhild said a young woman from a small Norwegian town, immigrates to Chicago, Illinois, and takes on the name Bell. She married a man named Mads Sorensen, and together they owned a confectionery store in Chicago. For a while, Bell appears to be living the American dream. A family, 
a comfortable home, and a new business. But tragedy strikes. Two of her children die from what appears to be acute colitis, an inflammatory disease of the intestines with symptoms suspiciously similar to poisoning. Then, her husband Mads also dies. While one of his doctors believes that Mads died of heart failure, another contends he was poisoned. Because so many people in Chicago found this very unusual, and Belle was feeling very uncomfortable living in Chicago at this point, she decided to move to Laporte in November of 1901. In Laporte, she buys a farm and starts her life anew. She gets remarried to a local farmer named Peter Gunnis. But it isn't long before the Grim Reaper strikes again. They were only married about one week, and Jenny Gunnis, his youngest daughter, died mysteriously at the house. Eight months later, in December of 1902, Peter Gunnis also dies in a bizarre household accident. He was getting his shoes, and while putting them on, according to Bell, he bumped the stove and a sausage grinder that was on the shelf behind him fell and hit him on the head. Widowed once again, Bell puts an ad in the paper. These ads stated that a woman with a large and beautifully located farm is willing to uh, make a partnership with men who would be interested in becoming a partner in her farm. Astley's brother, the South Dakota farmer Andrew Helgeline, responded to this ad and moved to Laporte. And that's the last his family ever saw of him. Until his body was mysteriously uncovered by Astley, 14 feet below the ground. Could Bell Gunnis be a deadly seductress and a serial killer? And if so, why would she kill members of her own family? The Laporte police discover a shocking pattern, what appears to be a cold, calculating plan to murder for profit. While Bell was living in Chicago, she first learned about insurance. Bell had taken out not just one, but two life insurance policies on her first husband. She went on to collect a handsome insurance payout for the death of her second husband, Peter Gunnis, as well. But who were the other 12 people found buried on her farm? Some of them are identified as other known suitors of Bell's. As it turns out, Andrew Helgeline may not have been the first man to respond to one of Bell's ads or to die by her hand. So all these men who came to visit her thinking they were going to have a wonderful life on her farm in Laporte, Indiana, all she really wanted was their money. And when it came to disposing of the bodies of her victims, she may have used this wheelbarrow. Who knows, probably all 13 of the victims, or maybe even more than that, were taken in this cart to be buried. But the question still remains. If Bell Gunnis committed these heinous crimes, then how did she end up charred and headless on her own farm? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When 13 bodies are discovered beneath a burned-out farm in Indiana, police suspect the murderer is the owner of the property, a woman named Belle Gunness. But is this well-to-do landlady really a serial killer? Police return to the headless body and come to a stunning realization. The corpse is too small to be that of Belle Gunness who weighed in at around 200 pounds. Most people, I think, believed that Balgunas had escaped and she got away with all of the money. In the end, the headless woman is never identified. But now the horrifying pieces of the puzzle fall into place. Investigators believe that Balgunas started the fire, faked her own death, and vanished. And the date and details of her death remain unknown. Today, this antique wheelbarrow on display at the LaPorte County Historical Society Museum is a reminder of the infamous serial killer and the dark secrets she took to her grave. The ocean has fascinated man since the dawn of time. And the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego is dedicated to studying this wondrous source of plant and animal life. The institution's goal, explains senior scientist H.J. Walker, is to expand our knowledge of the sea by cataloging the creatures that make it their home. Here in the marine vertebrate collection at Scripps, we have two million specimens representing about 20% of all the world's species. And there is one creature in the collection with remarkable features like no other that has baffled men for centuries. This specimen is about three feet long, 
maybe two and a half feet high. It has an enormous eye. This is the partially decomposed head of a monstrous fish. This specimen is so amazing because it's one of the largest specimens ever seen. The dimensions of the head alone suggest it was attached to a creature of enormous length. It conjures up notions of a centuries-old marine myth that struck fear in the hearts of sailors. What monstrous sea beast is this? 1817, Cape Ann, Massachusetts. Off the coast of this fishing community, a man named Lonson Nash spies something remarkable. Lonson Nash sees an unusual creature in the water. He's never seen anything like it before. The black form is at least 50 feet long and exhibits bizarre movements. It was moving at a fairly rapid pace, obviously horizontally, but he also witnessed it moving vertically. And as mysteriously as it appears, it vanishes. Nash is convinced that he knows what this creature is, a legendary monster of the deep, the sea serpent. Thousands of years ago, sea serpents were thought to be so dangerous that they would kill people. Sailors would even mark on maps where they've sighted sea serpents, telling other sailors, don't go there. Nash documents his terrifying encounter and publishes it in a local pamphlet. And when he did that, everybody in the community read all about it and had no doubt that what he saw was actually the truth. As word of Nash's sighting spreads, others claim to have witnessed the same bizarre creature. And soon, the curious descend on Cape Ann. So in the summer of 1817, media started to show up, scientists started to show up to investigate, and even gave a name to this fish. The Cape Ann creature. But the phenomena is not limited to the waters off Cape Ann. Bermuda, Ireland, Scotland, England, all these kinds of sightings were about the same kind of a creature. But the massive beast is never captured. Then, in the 1900s, sightings taper off and interest in the Cape Ann creature wanes. Until one morning in 1996, when two Navy SEALs jogging along the Southern California coast see something that stops them dead in their tracks. 24 feet long, crimson dorsal fin along entire length of its body. They'd never seen a creature like this in their entire lives. Has the legendary sea serpent returned? Stories of underwater monsters are as old as the sea. But in 1996, Navy SEALs discover something extraordinary. An enormous snake-like creature, now preserved at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Have these men stumbled upon the body of a real-life sea serpent? The SEALs are stunned. They've never encountered anything like this before. They turn to the experts at the nearby Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and marine vertebrate expert H.J. Walker takes the call. We get a call from the Navy SEAL instructor. He described the fish. I told everybody around me in the lab, we're going to the beach. 
the Scripps team rushes off to see the remarkable creature. And there it was, 24 feet long, lying on the beach. Walker and his team determine that they are staring at one of the most elusive beasts of the sea, a creature known as the oarfish. The oarfish is not seen too often because they live in a very deep part of the ocean, uh, usually about 600 feet or so, down to around 3,000 feet. Flat and silver-colored, with long red dorsal fins that run the length of their bodies, oarfish can reportedly grow to 50 feet. We estimate that the 24-foot-long specimens with the Navy SEALs, they were estimating that it was approximately 250, 300 pounds. This mammoth creature, the largest bony fish in the ocean, requires 15 men to lift its slippery, scaly body. But was the oarfish also the infamous sea serpent spotted by Lonson Nash off the coast of Cape Ann? This animal, more than any other creature in the ocean, fits the description of a sea serpent. It's got this really long body, it swims like a serpent, it has this beautiful dorsal fin on the top of its body. Very strange features that fishes don't normally have. But while the oarfish looks like a sea serpent, is it really the man-eating killer monster of legend? Oarfish may look scary, but there's no reason to be afraid at all. These fish have no teeth in their jaws. They can't even bite you if they wanted to. Though it may have inspired inflated legends for centuries, this oarfish specimen at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography is a reminder that the real creatures of the deep are nothing short of extraordinary. A concession stand shaped like an elephant, giant clown shoes, gilded carriages and ornate animal cages. These are just a few of the larger-than-life relics on display at the Circus World Museum in Baraboo, Wisconsin. As the birthplace and longtime headquarters of the Ringling Brothers Circus, this modest town has seen its share of high-flying feats and topsy-turvy hijinks. But here in the archives of the Circus World Museum is a charred souvenir with a burning tail, yellowed and singed around the edges. What makes this particular artifact amazing is that it survived at all. According to archivist Pete Schrake, this is the tattered remnant of a tragic circus tale, a piece of sheet music that was never played on one fateful summer day. The sheet music was at the center of one of the most horrifying tragedies in American circus history. What sparked the deadliest disaster in the history of the circus? 1944. The country is in the throes of the Second World War. The draft has left the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus critically short of manpower. But Americans are so desperate for entertainment that according to museum director Steve Fries, the president himself makes a plea. Franklin Roosevelt, our president at the time, asked the uh, circus to stay on the road to help with the morale of the country. July 6th, Hartford, Connecticut. On this hot summer afternoon, nearly 8,000 circus goers are packed into the big top. You had mothers taking their children to go and see the circus. 
As the band strikes up a tune, all eyes are fixed on the stars of the show, the big cats. But what no one realizes is that in a far corner of the tent, trouble is brewing. The canvas has caught fire. Among the first to act is the ground crew. They do have some buckets of water at their disposal, but it unfortunately it has no effect at all on the blaze. Before long, flames are licking the sides of the tent. And once it hits the roof of the tent, then that's when the, the disaster truly occurs. At that point, you have all the center poles and the quarter poles now starting to fall. As it collapses, the blazing big top traps hundreds of panicked circus goers. There are accounts of this tremendous screaming and wailing as people are burned alive. Just 10 minutes after the fire began, the entire tent lies in a smoldering heap. More than 160 men, women, and children are dead, and hundreds more are seriously injured. Only a few items survive the devastation. Among them, this piece of sheet music. Pages from a song that would have kicked off the show's grand finale. But it was never played. In the aftermath, state and local officials comb the scene for evidence as to what started the fire. And in the burnt remains of the Big Top, they discover their first big clue. The canvas was waterproofed with a mixture of paraffin and gasoline. Paraffin and gasoline are a common low-budget waterproofing method at the time, and one that makes an incredibly flammable combination that a light is almost impossible to put out. Circus officials used this method when wartime shortages kept them from obtaining fireproof canvas. And it is the reason why the, the fire spreads so quickly. As accusations fly, Ringling Brothers is blamed for the fire and five circus employees are sentenced to prison for involuntary manslaughter. In the end, the circus ends up paying over $5 million in damages to the victims. Reeling from the loss and the bad publicity, the greatest show on earth nearly shuts down. But one troubling question remains. Who or what set off the inferno in the first place? It's 1944. A fire erupts in a packed circus big top, killing hundreds and reducing the area to ashes. Among the debris is this charred piece of sheet music on display at the Circus World Museum in Wisconsin. So who or what caused this deadly inferno? For years, most people think that the Hartford Circus Fire was a terrible accident. But six years later, in 1950, a man named Robert Segui comes forward with a startling confession. Robert Segui was a troubled employee of the circus and had a difficult relationship with one of the department heads. It turns out that Segui had worked for the circus at the time of the Hartford fire. Tortured by his conscience, he now points the finger at the culprit behind the fire, himself. But why did Segui choose to destroy so many lives, not to mention his own livelihood? A bizarre tale emerges from the interrogation. 
he states that he has a vision of a man, a kind of like a horned individual who tells him to set the fire. According to Sagi, this same vision haunted his dreams for years and drove him to commit countless acts of arson. And investigators soon uncover a long trail of suspicious fires left in Sagi's wake. After pleading guilty to multiple arson charges, Sagi receives a 44-year prison sentence. But he later recants his confession, and after serving only a few years, he's declared a paranoid schizophrenic and committed to a state hospital for the insane, leaving it uncertain as to whether Sagi was the real arsonist at all. Scant solace for the traumatized victims of the fire. I don't think people ever got over the tragedy that they went through on July 6th. I think that they went to their grave still having nightmares about it. Although Ringling Brothers eventually recovers from the disaster, the tragedy changes the circus industry. New health and safety standards are put in place, and a military-grade fireproofing compound is made available to all circuses. Today, this sheet music in Wisconsin's Circus World Museum stands as a testament to the horrific day when the greatest show on earth went up in flames. Working down in the coal mine. For years, this dangerous and back-breaking job has been one of the economic foundations of Somerset County, Pennsylvania. Somerset has a very rich mining history. It's very important to the local economy. Built to commemorate the importance of mining in the area is the Kew Creek Mine Educational Center. Center director Bill Arnold knows that the most important artifact in the whole building might be an old yellow cage. It's basically a 22-inch diameter cylinder, about 9 feet long, and it's got yellow mesh wire around it. What is the significance of this yellow steel cage? And what part did it play in an epic fight for survival 250 feet below the Earth's crust? July 24, 2002, 9 p.m. Nine coal miners are nearing the end of their shift. Suddenly, millions of gallons of water start rushing at them, pinning them against the wall as they hang on for their lives. Amazingly, their initial thoughts were the safety of other men that were in the mine with them. The nine men know that there is a second group of miners working below them who will drown if they don't escape to higher ground. They went to the phones and they began to call the guys that were in the lowest portion of the mines, began screaming, we hit water, get out. But just as the miners are imploring their co-workers to get out, the phone line goes dead. They have no idea if their buddies heard them. All they can do now is try to save themselves. But their escape routes are blocked, and the available supply of oxygen is dwindling by the second. They were panting like dogs, and they literally thought this was the end. Huddling together, the miners prepare to die a horrible death. Is there any hope for these men, or are they fated to drown beneath the onrushing water?
When a coal mine ruptures in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, nine men are trapped inside. Millions of gallons of water are flooding the mine, and time is running out. Can these desperate men be saved? The miners have no idea that their co-workers successfully escaped and are now leading a gigantic rescue effort. Excavators began to show up with equipment. Drillers began to show up with drill rigs, and eventually there were several hundred people here. Rescuers work furiously to save the miners, but they have no idea if they're too late. They lower a drill bit into the area where they believe the miners are trapped. And miraculously, it reaches them. They began to pound on that drill bit. It was exhilarating to know that there were men alive. The rescuers know there is no time to spare. Their plan? To lower the yellow steel capsule and try to lift the men, one at a time, to safety. The capsule was dropped down very tentatively the first time, not knowing what we might find. And nine times we were able to get guys in that capsule and bring them up safely. They were completely covered with coal dirt. The only thing you could really see on the miners was the whites of their eyes and their teeth. And you could see quite a bit of their teeth because they were smiling. The miners are greeted not only by hundreds of friends and family, but also by the watchful eyes of an entire country's press corps. The guys told us that they had no idea that there were hundreds of people and cameras from all over the world. But the question remained, why did all that water burst onto the miners? The men thought they were safely excavating 300 feet away from a subterranean reservoir. What they didn't know was the maps weren't accurate. In reality, they were only three feet away, and the weight of that water pressing on the coal seam literally blew through into the mine. The Q Creek disaster leads to safety reforms within America's coal mines. And the rescue capsule held here at the Q Creek Mine Educational Center is a tribute to the nine men trapped underground in 2002 and the people above ground working to save their lives. From circus fires to serial killers, cunning spies to clever canines. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.